Hey friend, thank you for tuning in to this sermon uh, at Citizens Church. Uh, we don't typically do this before our sermons, but I wanted to offer a quick note to try and prevent uh, misunderstanding where there could be misunderstanding. The sermon that you're about to hear uh, is on forgiveness, but we begin the sermon by praying as a church uh, in response to the murder of George Floyd and praying that God would comfort the family, comfort all those who are afflicted and oppressed because of their race, and then praying for God to bring justice to a country that is sick with systemic injustice. And then we turn our attention to Colossians 3.13 on forgiveness. And I just want you to know very simply that the context I have in mind in the way that we talk about forgiveness from this passage is interpersonal relationships. The context I have in mind is not a response to systemic injustice. While I believe the principles from Scripture, the truth from Scripture apply to both, uh, I would have certainly spoken differently in a lot of ways had the context been in response to all that's going on in the world. So I hope that that distinction is helpful. I hope it prevents any unintended hurt. And thank you again so much for tuning in. I hope that um, the teaching of God's Word makes the character and heart of God more visible and clear to you, that you might look more like the Son of God, Jesus. Thank you for listening. You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Well, good morning, church. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, and we'll be uh, again in verses 12 through 14 this morning. Uh, before uh, we read back through those verses and, and kind of go where we're going this morning, I want to take some time to just pray as a church. And this is something that maybe typically we would do in one of our prayer nights. We don't have uh, those coming up anytime soon. And just felt uh, that it was appropriate and urgent and right for us as a church to spend time praying specifically in response to the healing that we need in this country. And so I'm thinking specifically of the video that came out uh, of a man, George Floyd, who's victim of injustice and just in a tragic and unnecessary uh, and really hard to comprehend way who lost his life. And really that's the latest in a long line of tragedies that, that point to this reality that we have a sickness in our country, and that sickness is injustice that, uh, that flows along the roads that racism built hundreds of years ago and, and continues to build now. And the people of God are to respond in moments like these with empathy and love and action and prayer. There's a psalm that I came across, it's Psalm 72. It's a psalm of Solomon, and Solomon is, is describing the heart of a righteous king, and he says this. It doesn't describe his life because he failed in these ways, but it does describe the heart of Jesus. It says in, in Psalm 72, verses 12 through 14, for he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor in him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. Hear this, from oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. God cares about people. People are precious to God. 
and when the violent and the arrogant will look at the color of someone's skin and will see, because of the difference of the color of their skin, see someone who is less than them or see someone who is beneath them, what God looks and sees is he sees his image. What God looks and sees is he sees dignity and he sees value and he sees one who is precious to him. And so his people, the church, we will celebrate his image and where that image is dishonored, where that image is oppressed, we cry out to God for justice and we come to the defense and use our voices and our prayers to appeal to a God who would look and say their blood is precious in my sight. So would you take some time to pray? I know that it's less personal than I wish it could be because of the circumstances, but would you just take maybe a minute where you're at to pray for God to bring healing, to pray for God to embolden his people, to use their voices, to pray for the families affected, and then I'll close this out in just a minute. God, we need you, and in this world uh, is desperate for you, whether they know it or not, uh, that it is sick with sin, and it is sick with prejudice, and it is sick with injustice, and Jesus, you are the only one who can heal, uh, and you are not silent, you are not passive, but you uh, have come in love. And, and you have entered into our pain and into our struggles that you might make a way for healing in your world through your love and through your justice. And so I just pray uh, that you would use your people, God, to declare what is true about your heart, God, that you care for those who are oppressed and you care for those who are vulnerable. Pray, God, for the Floyd family. Pray that you would comfort them. I pray for George's daughter, Gianna, God, that you would comfort her, that you would use whatever people of God that are around her to surround her with truth and empathy. Lord, I, I pray for, for those who are just uh, so fatigued, personally afraid, um, maybe growing hopeless as they see more and more of sin and devastation and exploitation just all around. I pray specifically, God, for the people of color in Citizens Church, our brothers and our sisters who, and I just don't know what it's like to be them when another tragic event is, is all over the news and all over the feeds. Lord, would you strengthen them, comfort them, God. 
Would we learn to be empathetic towards one another? Would we learn to be, uh, God, bold? Would you, would you protect us as your people from not getting caught up in the way that these tragedies and these, and these real lives are politicized in a way that would divide and cloud, but we would stand firm on the truth of your word and declare that you're the kind of king that frees the oppressed and you're the kind of king that sees the blood of those who have been unjustly treated and it's precious to you, God. It's precious to you. We love you. Amen. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. It may be an uncomfortable turn to make, but uh, we'll make it together. So Colossians 3, 12 through 14, I want to read it and then tell you where we're going this morning. It says this, starting in verse 12, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, here's here we'll spend all of our time this morning, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. For the last several weeks, we've been seeing that God loves us as we are in Jesus. And what that love does is that love makes us look like Jesus. It changes us to look like Jesus. And so if there's one word that sums up what it means to look like Jesus, that word is love. Because that's what marked Jesus's life, that we uh, love the way that Jesus loved, that we're changed to love the way that he loves. And Jesus, the way that he loved, is the way that God loves. And it's defined in this passage. It's patient, and it's meek, and it's kind. And as we said last week, leaning into the metaphor that Paul gave us, as we live this way, it's like putting on new clothes. It's like dressing for the kingdom, the new world that Jesus is bringing. It's dressing for the world that both is and is to come, similar to maybe how we dress for a wedding, a special event, or how we dress for something that's important. And in our clothes, when we're suit and tie going to an event, our clothes point to something that is happening. It points to somewhere that we're going. And so we live lives of love, clothe ourselves in love, in the new world, the kingdom both is and is coming, and that's present in our lives, namely in the way that we love. And so the world of injustice and the world of idolatry and the world of racism and violence, that world is passing away. In the world of peace, in the world of healing, in the world of joy, that world is coming. And, and what I do, what Jamin does, what you do as a Christian is we stand in between those two worlds. And when we put on love, when we put on love, what we say is that world is present now in and through me. It both is and is coming. Verse 13 is such an important verse, such a helpful verse. If the, if the conversation is a conversation of love, the question that verse 13 answers about love is this. What does love look like when it's really difficult to love? When relationships are strained, when people are difficult, what does it look like to put on love when those around me are in need? And it comes out in two ways. According to verse 13, love in the midst of difficulty will do one of two things. It will either bear with or it will forgive, depending on what's needed. 
So last week we said love bears with, and, and that means it says I am with you and for you, even and especially when things are difficult because I want my life to make your life look more like Jesus. And so when you're weak and you need me to be strong, I'm going to bear with. And when you're at your worst and you need me to endure, I'm going to bear with. I'm not going to move away from you. I'm going to move in closer to you. And that was last week. This morning, we see the other side of that, that love is also forgiving as we've been forgiven. It says in verse 13, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Two truths from that short half verse. One, you will be sinned against, even by other Christians, and you already have, surely. In your life, you will be sinned against. Uh, The world is broken and we are broken. If you'll remember with me, this letter is read to a room full of people who are packed in someone's living room, and that room full of people, they've been hurt by one another. They've lied to one another. They've cheated each other. They've slandered. They've taken advantage. And you know how we know that? Because it's a room full of people. And, And you know this reality. You know this experience. You've experienced that, that we in our brokenness, in our sin, because the kingdom is already, but in so many ways it's not yet. We hurt each other. We hurt each other. Uh, You have sinned against others watching this, and you have been sinned against. And, and, And here's what that sin does in a relationship. It separates in relationships. Uh, sin creates walls and it creates distance. And when I sin against you, when you sin against me, it erodes trust in what sin, sin is a mocker relationally. It mocks intimacy and it mocks friendship and it mocks unity. And where we sin against each other, we don't just move past it. Uh, we, We don't just move on something has to happen to restore the relationship. And where sin is undealt with in a relationship, that relationship has no choice but to grow cold or bitter and begin to deteriorate. That's truth number one. You will be sinned against. Truth number two, because we have been forgiven, when we are sinned against, we can forgive. Because we've been forgiven, when sinned against, we can forgive. Jesus tells a story in Matthew chapter 18, and it's a story about the kingdom. It's one of his parables. Uh, As a brilliant storyteller, he says, he starts the parable this way, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to. So the kingdom of God, the kingdom that he's bringing is like a king who is compassionate And this king is wanting to settle accounts with those who owe him money. And a guy walks into the king's palace and this particular person owes the king Uh, a debt that would take lifetimes to repay, lifetimes to repay. And the man falls at the feet of the king and he pleads with the king and filled with compassion, the king forgives all of his debt. Doesn't put him on a repayment plan with a word. He says, you owe me nothing. What stood between us was your debt. And now I've lifted that. And what stands between us is my grace and my mercy and my compassion and my love. And Jesus says the kingdom of God is like that. A compassionate king that can cancel debts in a moment. And in the story that Jesus tells, the man walks out of the palace, having just been forgiven, having just had his debt canceled, walks out of the palace and finds a man who owes him a debt that would take about a month to repay. And the one who was just forgiven of a debt that would have taken lifetimes to repay 
looks at the one who owes a debt that would take about a month to repay, and instead of extending to him the mercy, instead of extending to him the grace, instead of extending to him the love that he just received, he throws him in prison and demands that he stay in prison until he pays his debt. And here's Jesus's point. He tells the story, the order he tells it, for a very specific reason. Uh, If the man runs into, if the one who had been forgiven runs into the person who owes him a month's wage before he has the encounter with the king, he can't afford to forgive the debt. He can't because he owes so much. And so he has to strain from those who owe him every penny he can because of the debt that he owes to the king. But that's not how the story unfolds. He walks out of the palace owing nothing having been forgiven, and the account that was filled with debt is now filled with love and mercy, and as one who has been forgiven, he can now afford to forgive, to extend forgiveness. Christian, you have been forgiven. You've been forgiven of all of your sin. You belong to the kingdom of the compassionate king, and when that king was enthroned on a cross, he forgave all of your debt, a lifetime of sin forgiven in a moment. With a word, he cancels your debt, and where your sin stood between you and God, now that's been replaced with grace, and that's been replaced with love, and so you can afford to forgive others. You, can, uh, you owe nothing. You can reach into your account that you have with God, and it's filled with love, and it's filled with mercy, and it's filled with a God who is for you and who is with you, and out of that account, you can forgive those who have sinned against you. It's a command. Forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. That is a really beautiful truth, and that is a really messy reality. C.S. Lewis says this, forgiveness is a lovely idea until you have something to forgive. And maybe, uh, I know many of you have been sinned against and, and maybe for some of you, you've been sinned against in ways that are really egregious and so a conversation like this leaves you with more questions than answers because you're trying to take this principle, this theological truth, and apply it to the complexity of your life and your relationships. And maybe the person who's sinned against you has acknowledged that sin to you. Maybe they haven't. And so what do you do? Or maybe it's a pattern of sin that somebody has committed against you. And so it makes forgiveness really complex and, and really weighty. And yet we can't get away from the reality that it's a command. We're commanded, as you've been forgiven, you must forgive. So what is it that God's asking us to do? In the rest of our time that we have together, I want to say three things about forgiveness, make three points about forgiveness that I hope, that I really hope, bring clarity for us. Forgiveness is three things. It is a response to sin. It requires repentance and it reveals the heart of God. Forgiveness is a response to sin. It requires repentance, and forgiveness reveals the heart of God. It reveals the heart of God both to the one who sinned and to the one who was sinned against. Our first point, forgiveness is a response to sin. Let me fight for a distinction here that I think is so important for us. Being sinned against and being offended are not the same thing not always the same thing. In other words, uh, if I have been sinned against, more than likely I'm going to also be offended, but when I am offended, it doesn't mean I was sinned against. It doesn't always mean I was sinned against. Uh, 
So I can be offended because of unmet expectations. Maybe I was or wasn't sinned against. I can be uh, offended because someone disagrees with me. I can be offended because I wanted to be served and I wasn't. But none of that necessarily means that sin was present. For instance, Jesus, he offended a lot of people. Uh, Jesus, there are moments when he said something and someone's mouth would just drop open and their heart would fill with anger and they were deeply offended at, at what he said. When Jesus stands in front of a crowd and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, lots of people took offense at that. Did he owe anyone an apology? Did he need to seek forgiveness? No, because he had not sinned. Now, in their offense, Jesus, because he's Jesus, he offers grace and he offers humility and he offers understanding, right? But you only seek forgiveness when you have sinned. Let me say it another way. Uh, Forgiveness is only needed where sin is present. Here's why that's so important. We live in what could be called the age of offense where anytime I am offended, I respond at the same level as if I was sinned against. And, and so often the person who is loudest about the ways they were offended is the one who gets the most attention. Often the person who is loudest about the ways they're hurt is the one who controls where the relationship goes. Sociologists have said about the Western culture in 2020 that we are growing more, this was before the, the pandemic, but we're growing more financially healthy that we're growing more technologically advanced and at the same time more emotionally fragile and more relationally insecure. And part of that fragility in the Christian community comes out as not being able to distinguish between where we've been sinned against versus where we have only been offended. And that comes out as us spiritualizing our offenses so that we believe we are owed more than we are. Here's why I'm talking about this. I worry that some of us could hear this message on forgiveness and you could hear the next 20 minutes or however long will go and you go to someone that you feel hurt by or go to somebody that you're offended by and demand that they seek your forgiveness when it's not owed because you're responding to sin that didn't happen. Forgiveness is required only when one has sinned. Maybe this will be helpful. I hope this will be helpful. When I'm offended, here is what God's word would compel me to do. When I'm offended, I need to start with a question. And here's the question. Can I name the offense as sin? Can I find what happened to me in the Bible with a chapter and a verse and in my offense say, you know, I was lied to or I was the victim of unrighteous anger or, or I was the, on the other side, on the wrong side of someone's immorality or envy or idolatry and it's fractured the relationship and I can look and I can see in my offense I was sinned against according to God's word. But that's the starting place to ask of the offense. Can I name the offense as sin? And what that question will do, please hear me. What that question will do is it replaces my feeling of offense as the authority in the relationship and it replaces that with the word of God as the authority in the relationship, which means I will promote in all of my relationships mutual submission to the voice of God instead of promoting in my relationships that everyone submit to to my voice. Ask the question, can I name the offense as sin? Let me pause for a minute and just offer a few things. Friend, if in asking that question, if you find yourself, if you find yourself often offended in your relationships 
but you can't name those offenses as sin, it may mean one of two things. It may mean that you are looking to others for what you can only get from God. And you're expecting out of your relationships the kind of uh, satisfaction. You're expecting the kind of completion. You're expecting the kind of rest that only God can give you. And so if I'm looking for that every time that the person can't give to me what only God can, I feel hurt. I feel offended. Or maybe if, if I'm offended in my relationships but I can't name those offenses as sin and this is happening to me over and over again, maybe it's that I am demanding of my relationships that they treat me like God, that they give me control over their life that only God deserves, and when I don't, they're offended, uh, that, that I demand people be dependent on me in ways that they should only depend on God, that, that in my relationships they should worship me in ways that they should only worship God, and so if that's me, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to elevate my offenses as if I was sinned against, and at the same time, I'm going to minimize my actual sin against others, which is the recipe for, at best, an unhealthy relationship and, at worst, an abusive one. Hear this. Hear this. Sometimes being offended is a response to sin that's coming to us from someone else's life, and sometimes I'm offended because of sin coming out of my own life, or sometimes I'm offended because of wounds in my own soul that have left me tender and have left me easily offended, and what I need is I need Jesus to heal, and if it's from my wounds, it means I need to ask those around me to walk with me towards healing, not demand that they take responsibility for hurt that they didn't cause. Can I name the sin is the question we ask in our offense, and what if the answer in my offense is I was not sinned against? What do I do then? Where do I go with my offense? Because it's real, and the feeling is real, and the hurt is real, and I have to go somewhere with it. And so where there is offense, but there is not sin, what the Bible says to do, you know what the Bible's answer is? Bear with, to endure. Uh, where expectations weren't met, where someone disagrees, I bear with them. It's the exact context of this passage and everything that we said last week. It's a group of people in Colossae and they're different from one another in so many ways and their lives are different politically and culturally and they find each other's lives and many of their beliefs and preferences to be offensive. And what do they do with their offense? Where do they go with their offense if there is no sin? Relational endurance. They bear with, they say, I am with you and for you, even and especially when it's hard because I want my life to make your life look more like Jesus. And friends, we, we need this. We need this as a church. We need uh, to have as part of who we are an eagerness to bear with others even in our offenses because the natural response is to treat our offenses like sin. And when we treat our offenses like sin, we close our fists at people when we disagree with one another, when there's some sort of, you know, uh, macro level, you know, disagreement. And, and when I find from your post that you disagree with me, I close my fist at you. Or, or when I'm offended, I close my fist and feel neglected. When my expectations weren't met and I feel like I'm the only one that's trying to make this work, I close my fist. And that's not love. Love opens your hands. 
and love offers, even in my offense and even in my disappointment and even in our disagreements, my, my, my love offers that I will bear with you. I will open my hands to you because we can endure in our disagreements because of our common love for God. And I can be closer to you even in my hurt because for me, this is not about me. It's about being with and for you that my life makes you look more like Jesus. And Citizens Church, could we please bear with one another? that our commitment together is that we lay down our offenses and put on love, that we might not contribute to all the ways the people of God are making a mockery of the unifying love of God by being as divided as the surrounding world who doesn't even know God. In our offense, where there is no sin, we bear with. Okay, but what about when I have been sinned against? How do I respond? Our first point is that sin, uh, forgiveness is a response to sin. Our second point is that forgiveness requires repentance. Um, and maybe this is the part that will be the most unfamiliar, or this is the part which will create the most space for misunderstanding. So I want to try to be very clear. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Who does Jesus forgive? Everyone? No those who repent. In 1 John 13, it says, if we, confess, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins. Not everyone is forgiven, only those who come through repentance and seek the forgiveness that comes from Jesus. And our forgiveness of each other is modeled after God's forgiveness of us. It's empowered by, and it flows from God's forgiveness of us. Jesus says it this way in Luke 17, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If, if I have been sinned against, I cannot offer forgiveness until it's sought by the one who sinned. Let me say it this way. Forgiveness walks through the door that repentance opens. Forgiveness walks through the door that repentance opens. Let's say that I lied to Carrie. Uh, Carrie's my wife, we have been married almost 12 years, together almost 16 years, and let's say I uh, lied to her, which I have done in our years together in my sin, and so I lied to her again, and in that moment, she's been sinned against. I sinned against her, and what my sin has done, when I lied to her, what my sin has done is it has erected a wall between us, and she's on the other side of that because sin separates. Sin mocks intimacy, it mocks relationship, it mocks unity, it deteriorates relationships between people. And so trust has been broken, relationship is fractured, I lied to my wife, and she is hurt. What do I do? I have a responsibility in love, she has a responsibility in love. And I'll start with me. My responsibility is to seek forgiveness from God and from her. That's the righteous response of repentance. The loving response is to repent and seek forgiveness from God and from her. Let me list a couple of unloving responses. An unloving response is to ignore it, to act like it didn't happen, which is to look at the wall that I have erected between us in my sin and to say it's not really there, which is just to continue to lie. But she sees it and she knows that it's there. Another unloving response is to excuse it. So I have sinned against you, but you know, I'm under a lot of stress right now, and I don't know if you've, you've been paying attention, but, but the world uh, is really difficult right now, and so I lied, but it's not my fault. In fact, 
I come from a long history of liars, which isn't true, just in case my mom's watching. Uh, it's to look, though, to excuse it, is to look at the wall that my sin created and say, somebody else built it. And so I'm not responsible for it, which is still to leave her on the other side of it. And the most, the most unloving response is not to ignore it or not to excuse it, but to blame her for it, to make her believe it's somehow her fault. You know, I lied, but I can't be honest with you because you're irrational. Yes, I lied, but I couldn't be honest with you because you overreact to things, which isn't true about you, Carrie. Maybe I shouldn't have used a personal example, I don't know. But, but to say to her, in my sin, you made me do it, you left me no choice, that's the most unloving response because it's to compound the hurt that I have caused by my sin and I compound that hurt with the hurt of making her feel like it's her fault or the hurt of making her feel crazy, or the hurt of, of gaslighting her in her hurt for feeling like she's uh, feeling hurt. And that's to stand on the other side of the wall that my sin built and to tell her if she wants to get to me, she's gonna have to tear it down. So she's already wounded by me and then in her woundedness, I tell her she has to do the work if she wants things to be right again. And that's not just an unloving response. That response is the very opposite of love. The response of love that puts on Christ, that declares the world both is and is to come, his kingdom is and is to come, is to kneel down at the wall that my sin erected and in humility say, I sinned against God and against you. I am sorry, will you forgive me? I sinned against God and against you. I'm sorry, and, and not I'm sorry, but, or I'm sorry, and now let's talk about you. I sinned against God and against you. I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And maybe what that means is that means I need to listen to her for a bit to hear how my sin hurt her in ways that I wasn't even aware, but my posture is humble repentance, and in humble repentance, what I'm doing is I'm making a way through the wall that my sin built. Repentance is opening the door so that forgiveness can walk through. And I wonder if you would think about something with me. And I love you and I care about you and so would you think about something with me? As you look at the history of your relationships, what do you see? If you look back at your relationships and your relationships are all laid out on a road and that road is filled with walls, what kind of walls do you see? And those are the walls that your sin has erected. If you look, do you see walls that your sin built that you've asked people to ignore? Do you see walls that your sin built that you've uh, blamed on others? Do you see walls that your sin built that you have asked the ones you claim to love to tear down? Or do you see walls that your sin built that your repentance has made a way through? I don't know a question as important as that for a Christian to answer in this time. Okay, it requires repentance. If I do not repent, if I do not create that in my sin, Carrie can't offer forgiveness. If I sin against her and I don't repent, she can't offer forgiveness. She can't agree with God about forgiveness for my sin before I have agreed with God about the reality of my sin. 
She can't agree with God about forgiveness for my sin before I agree with God about the reality of my sin, and that leaves us with a question, a very important question. What do we do when we've been sinned against and there is no repentance? What if, uh, what does Carrie do if she's on the other side uh, and I've sinned against her and I have not sought forgiveness from God and from her? And that's where many of you maybe find yourselves and, and God cares about that and cares that you know what's true, where you are. You've been sinned against and you're on the other side of a wall that someone's sin created and you're trying to find a way through and yet they've not opened the door through, uh, through repentance. And, and what does that mean? Does that mean that I have permission to grow bitter towards them? Does it mean that I have to belittle what's been done to me? And there's a response of love even in that place. There is a way Christian to respond in a way that puts on Christ even in that place and it's kindness and trust. Even if you're waiting for repentance that has not yet come, you can choose kindness and trust. Kindness towards the one who sinned against you and trust in God. If I am to love the way that God loved me before I repented, what was God to me? He was kind. It's the kindness of God that led me to repent. And so while I am waiting for it, I am hoping that my kindness invites it in the life of another person. And that does not mean enabling them. It does not mean uh, acting like nothing happened. It does not mean making it easier in the relationship for them to sin against me again. Kindness means I will posture in love towards them in a way that I hope turns them towards God. And my bitterness or my slander or responding to being sinned against with more sin, it's going to cloud that. And so I will choose kindness. And then as I wait for repentance that may or may not come, I will trust God. I will trust the justice that will come from a just God. God will settle my case that God will right every wrong and he will right every wrong either in the death of his son on the cross in the past or he will right every wrong in the return of his son bursting through the clouds in the future. And I can trust that God and that is good news for you. Because what that means is that means that your healing is not tied up in repentance that may or may not come to you. That means that you can heal from sin committed against you if the person, even if the person who committed the sin never apologizes, acknowledges, or seeks forgiveness for it. You can find healing by putting your trust in God who cares and sees and who will right every wrong. But where there is repentance, where someone has sinned, and they come and they say, I have sinned against God and I've sinned against you. I'm sorry. Do you forgive me? Where repentance comes, it is always, always met by forgiveness for the Christian. When repentance opens the door in love, we put on Christ and forgiveness walks through. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no consequences. It's not what forgiveness is. If I lie to carry, forgiveness doesn't mean that trust automatically returns and then some sins are so egregious that even where there is forgiveness, things will never be the same. But what I am offering in forgiveness as somebody's repentance has opened the door, I am agreeing with God that your sin is not held against you and I won't either. I am agreeing with God that your debt is canceled and where there is repentance, I cannot withhold from others the forgiveness that was offered to me because it's not actually about me. It's about revealing God 
That's our last point. Forgiveness reveals the heart of God both to sinner and to the one sinned against because when I come to the wall that my sin built and I repent, I'm the one who sinned against. I I sinned against God and I sinned against you and the one I sinned against offers forgiveness back to me. We are both in that moment caught up in the grace and love of God. In that moment, what we're doing is every act of repentance that's met by forgiveness is a rehearsal of the gospel both to the one who sinned and the one who was sinned against because for the one who sinned, it reminds us that I'm seeking forgiveness as one who's been forgiven. I'm seeking forgiveness. I know that the compassionate king who cancels debts in a moment and I am reminded that even in my failure, he is faithful and it's because of him and all because of him that I can even make a way through the walls that my sin has built. And for the one who was sinned against, it reminds us that I'm offering forgiveness as one who has been forgiven. I am walking, I've left the king's palace and I'm walking around on God's earth and what I owed him has been lifted and in its place he has filled my life and surrounded my life with his love. Forgiveness reveals the heart of God both to the sinner and the one sinned against and we always offer it when repentance is sought. Corrie Ten Boom, she is one of my favorite authors. She lived during the Holocaust. She was a Christian who helped Uh, hide Jews from the Nazis uh, after the Nazi armies occupied the Netherlands where she lived, and she was eventually taken into a concentration camp, and after years of unspeakable suffering, she's released, and she feels lost in a world having, uh, on the other side of World War II, she feels lost in a world that's changed so dramatically, and she's carrying around these wounds and this trauma with her, and so what she does is she begins in that new world to help survivors cope in a post-Holocaust world. She realizes the only way that they'll truly heal is to learn to forgive and, so, and to learn to love their captors. And so she inv- she's invited to speak all around the world and eventually to speak in Germany. And she speaks at a church in Germany. And at the end of the church, uh, someone comes up to her smiling. It's a man who was one of her prison guards at one of the concentration camps that she was in. And I will spare the details of what he did to her and what he was responsible for, but she runs into him and here's what she says about the encounter in her biography. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, he said, to think that as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine and I, who had preached so often to the people in need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I can't forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for the stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. Do you see the heart of God revealed in a moment of forgiveness? 
that Jesus, in his rule and in his reign and in his love because of his sacrifice, is bringing healing to the world, and he has so filled our accounts with love and replaced the debt we owe with grace and life and healing so that we, out of the overflow of what he's given us, can offer the same to others who come in repentance of their sin, that we might then remind them of the compassionate King who cancels debts. Father, we love you. We thank you for your mercy and your grace and your kindness to us. I don't know of a, of a sermon uh, in a long time that I've felt so much angst about because of not knowing all of the stories and not knowing uh, maybe ways that, that even it could be insensitive to, to the complexity of some people's situations and their, and their difficulty and the ways that they've been wounded. And so I just pray, God, that where maybe even my words failed, that your word would bridge the gap and would encourage the faint heart. Lord, that maybe even, you know, in, in, in living rooms across Collin County, Lord, that there would be a husband and wife that get to have a really honest conversation about the walls that have been built between them. Friends can have those conversations, God, about the walls that have been built between them, and that what would prevail even in the complexity, what would prevail is the life-changing, world-transforming, sin-healing, forgiving love of Jesus our King. I ask that you would do that in your kindness, O oh God. We love you. Amen.